Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archives podcast. In this episode, Dublin City Council Historian-in-Residence Maeve Casserly discusses the Civil War, recorded at Rathmines Library on the 26th of June 2017 as part of the Irish Revolution 1917-1923 to lecture series. In this lecture series on the history of the Irish Revolutionary Period. We've looked at 1917 and now we're going to go right up to 1923. In the last two weeks what we covered um, was a great deal. So looking at the political upheavals following the Easter Rising, the conscription crisis, the Sinn Féin victory in the 1918 general election, the War of Independence and the workings of the first and second dogs. So uh, just in case anyone wasn't here the last two weeks, my name is Maeve, Maeve Cassidy, um, and I'm the historian in residence for uh, Dublin South East in this area, and myself and five other historians are working with the different Dublin city boroughs, and what we're doing is working with schools, uh, local history groups, uh, libraries and community groups, on projects of uh, local interest to people in the area. Uh, just to give a recap of uh, what we've covered, so by late 1918, uh, the political climate in Ireland had changed dramatically. Uh, the general election of December 1918 had shown that the once dominant um, Irish parliamentary party had almost completely disappeared with the subsequent rise of Sinn Féin. The years between the meeting of the first doll in January 1919 up to the signing of the truce which ended the war of independence in July 1921 were perhaps some of the most dramatic uh, in the history of Anglo-Irish relations. Uh, however, it did lead to a, a period of truce, uh, the introduction of partition, the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the establishment of the Irish Free State. And that's what I'm going to be covering in part of today's lecture. So on the 25th of June 1921, Lloyd George sent a letter to De Valera inviting him to a conference in London to quote, explore to the utmost the possibility of a settlement to the ongoing war. On the 5th of July, De Valera presented the offer to the Dáil, um, who then agreed on a truce. So for Collins and the IRA, the truce was a bit of a blessing as Republican forces were running low on weapons and ammunition. De Valera uh, agreed to attend a meeting with Lloyd George as long as James Craig, who was the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, was not present. The British accepted this and then the truce came into effect on the 8th of July 1921. Days after this, De Valera went to London to meet Lloyd George and he met him four times that week to discuss the terms of the treaty. Lloyd George then sent his initial proposals on the 20th of July that were actually quite roughly in line with what the treaty would eventually uh, turn out to be. This was followed by months of delay until October of 21 when the Irish delegates set up headquarters in Knightsbridge. The treaty negotiations lasted from the 11th of October until the 6th of December and concerned three vital points. Here we are, we have our three points. So these were the unity of Ireland, the degree of independence <coughs> uh, an Irish government would have, and the relationship of an Irish state to the British Empire. The first of these points had already been decided before the negotiations started. Northern Ireland, limited to the six northeastern counties, was up and running by mid 1921 under the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. By the time of the treaty negotiations, the partition of Ireland was therefore an established fact and no longer up for negotiations. Thus, the Unionists under James Craig did not even take part in the treaty talks. Northern Ireland as a whole was given the option of uniting with the southern state a year afterwards. There would also be a boundary commission set up to arbitrate on how the border could be changed to reflect the wishes of the local population. It was the hope of the Irish delegation that Northern Ireland's viability would eventually be undermined by the defection of much of the Catholic populated western and southern territory to the southern state. Nevertheless, the treaty did confirm the partition of Ireland in the short term. Perhaps most importantly to the Irish delegates, which was almost entirely composed of Southerners, was the question of the independence of the southern state. The British would 
retain three deep water naval ports, Loxway, Cove, and Berghaven. Irish citizens uh, also retained the right to appeal to the British High Court. The symbolic head of state would be the British monarch, to whom elected representatives would have to swear an oath of allegiance and who would also be represented in Ireland by a governor general. Outside of these areas, the British conceded quite a lot, making the southern state much more independent than the north. The Irish were given leave to choose any name, short of a republic, for their state. What Collins came up with was the Irish Free State, which is taken from Sayreshot, which was used by the nationalist movement up to that point. British troops were to be withdrawn from the country, which was to have its own armed force and a new police force. It was also to have full control over its fiscal policy, tariffs, and customs. These terms were a considerable improvement on either the Home Rule Bill of 1914 or the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 in terms of Irish independence. Nevertheless, they were still far from the independent Irish Republic that had been hoped for. The Irish team were therefore divided. And this is just um, a list here of the British uh, members of the delegation and then the Irish on uh, the right hand side and also just gives you an idea of what roles they had uh, in their own governments as well. So the list is just up there. So as you can see, the people who were sent there, De Valera is nowhere to be seen. De Valera gave a number of explanations from his absence from the Irish delegation. He said he needed to avoid compromising the Republic. He wants to be in a position uncontaminated by the negotiations to reopen dialogue in the event of resistance or to act as a final court of appeal. He also stated rather ambiguously that the decision was not his alone but somehow a collective one. Another perhaps more practical reason for his need to stay in Dublin was the increased tension between Carl Brook as Minister for Defence and Richard O'Cavill as Chief, Chief of Staff of the IRA. Uh, Paul Brewer had sent O'Cavill uh, a, letter, a letter on the 16th of September 1921 firing him. Uh, this was one of two occasions in which he did this in that period. The team de Valera did choose to send to London with Collins and Griffith as the leaders was on the basis of being a well-balanced one representing both the IRB and moderate forces in Ireland. There were nonetheless uh, divisions internally within the team. For example, Erskine Childers was reporting back independently to De Valera throughout the negotiations, and he was also distrusted by the British side, so much so that they tried to set up meetings to exclude him. Robert Martin, economic expert, thought, thought by Britain to be the head of this De Valera-Childers faction, and um, um, was also trying to be excluded from these meetings. Barton was there to push De Valera's idea of external association, which was kind of an ambivalent theory which De Valera never really fully explained to Griffith or Collins that was better than Dominion status but not quite an independent republic. Griffith criticised Barton for being too emphatic and creating a wrong atmosphere during the negotiations. So after months of negotiations, the Irish delegates brought back the terms of the dog, uh, the terms to the dog cabinet on the 3rd of December 1921. The meeting was brought uh, to an end without any approval and the divided cabinet. Later that evening, the negotiating team sailed back to Britain, but it was so divided that they took different boats. So uh, Barton, Childers and Duffy left via the North Wall, while Collins, Griffith and Duggan left from Dunleary or Kingstown and the one of them. Back in London uh, on the 4th of December, Lloyd George told them that it was either immediate signature or war, and that he had to know by the next day. Collins and Griffith impressed on Barton, the last dissenter, that if he did not sign, he alone would be responsible for, quote, Irish homes being laid to waste and the young of Ireland butchered. Barton caved in at about 11pm on the 5th of December. The treaty was signed in the early hours of the morning of December 6, 1921. In an often repeated exchange, Lord Birkenhead, one of the British negotiators, told Collins, quote, I may have signed my political death warrant. Collins replied, 
I may have signed my actual death warrant. Nine months later, Collins would be dead. Collins later claimed that at the last minute, Lloyd George threatened the Irish delegates with a renewal of, quote, terrible and immediate war if the treaty was not signed. So some of the main clauses of the treaty are uh, contained here. So you can see that among uh, some of the stipulations are the fact that the Crown forces will be withdrawn from Ireland. Ireland was going to become a self-governing dominion of the British Empire, like Australia or Canada. As with other dominions, the king was going to be the head of the state, uh, or what we call the Sarasot Aaron, and he will be represented by a governor general. Members of the new Free State Parliament would be required to take an oath of allegiance to uh, the Free State and the monarch. Northern Ireland would have the option of withdrawing from the Irish Free State within month, one month of the treaty coming into effect. If Northern Ireland chose to withdraw, a boundary commission would be, would be established to draw the boundary between the Free State and Northern Ireland. Britain would have its own security and control over a limited number of ports, which I mentioned. And the treaty would be superior in status to Irish law. So that meant in the event of a conflict between it and the new constitution of the Free State, the treaty would take precedence. Then they are called a cabinet meeting to discuss the treaty on the 8th of December, where he came out against it. The cabinet decided by four votes to three to recommend the treaty for debate in the Dáil. The Dáil debates lasted much longer than anticipated and exposed the diversity of opinion in Ireland. Opening the debate on the 14th of December, De Valera stated his view. It would be ridiculous to think that we could send five men to complete a treaty without the right of ratification by this assembly. This is the only thing that matters. Therefore, it is agreed that this treaty is simply an agreement and that it is not binding until the dog ratifies it. This is what we are concerned with. The treaty debates were difficult, but also comprised a wide and robust stock taking of the position by the contending parties. Their differing views on the past and their hopes for the future were made public. The focus had to be on the constitutional options, but little was made mention, little mention was made of the economy, nor of how life could be improved for the majority of the population. Though Sinn Féin had also campaigned to preserve the Irish language, very little use was made of it during these debates. Some of the female debaters were noted, notably in favour of continuing the war until a 32 county was established. Mary McSweeney, sister of Terence McSweeney, spoke against the treaty for longer than anyone else in the Dáil, a total of 2 hours and 41 minutes. She vehemently opposed the terms of the treaty, stating, In the name of the dead, unite against this treaty and let us take the consequences. The main dispute was centred on the status of Ireland as a Dominion state, as represented by the Oath of Allegiance rather than as an independent republic. But partition was also a significant matter for dissent. The public sessions lasted nine days, from the 19th of December to the 7th of January, during which Arthur Griffith moved that the Dáil approves uh, of the treaty between Great Britain and Ireland, signed in London on the 6th of December 1921. By the 6th of January, the day before the final vote, De Valera acknowledged the deep division within his cabinet. And I quote, Within these articles of, when these articles of agreement were signed, the body in which the executive authority of this assembly and of the state is vested became as completely split as it was possible for it to become. Irrevocably, not on personalities or anything of that kind of matter, but on absolute fundamentals. The second dog ratified the treaty on the 7th of January 1922 by a very close vote of 64 to 57. De Valera resigned as president on the 9th and was replaced by Arthur Griffith on a vote of 60 to 58. Colin Rua and Austin Sack also resigned. Griffith, as president of the Dáil, worked with Michael Collins, who chaired the new provisional government of the Irish Free State, set up the transfer power in the British administration to the new Free State. Over the following nine months, they attempted to create the nascent institutions of the new state around an uneasy balance of the old British regime and also elements of the revolutionary republic.
stage, which had been built up during the War of Independence. The year 1922, therefore, started in an atmosphere charged with political tension. Three years earlier, the first doll had established itself to undermine British rule and assert Ireland's demand for independence. Now, the doll had reassembled to accept a motion which would essentially keep the Irish free state under some form of British control. When De Valera and his supporters walked out of the doll, the battle lines were clearly drawn between those in favour of the treaty and those against. The nation, which had just endured a long war of independence, had now to brace itself for a civil war. The 62 TDs who remained in the doll had to establish a provisional government to organise the takeover of, the power, of power from the British. The takeover occurred in stages over the next 12 months when the provisional government would cease to exist. Griffith was elected president, as I said, of the doll in place of Devonair. This, is, was it, this was the new cabinet that he announced. You can see Griffith's president, Collins again as Minister for Finance, uh, and then W.T. Cosgrave in there as Minister for Local Government. On the 16th of January, Michael Collins met the Lord Lieutenant and accepted the surrender of Dublin Castle. Collins then travelled to London to meet with Winston Churchill to discuss matters such as the provision of services like health and education, the evacuation of the British Army, and an amnesty for Irish prisoners in British jails. The provisional government had a difficult, difficult task ahead to take on the effective government of the country. Many simply refused to accept the outcome of the treaty vote. There was no native civil service or police force, and there was very little military support to help support the British provisional government establish law and order throughout the country. So in January, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries uh, evacuated Ireland and the RIC was disbanded. It was now essential that the Dáil government establish a new force to police the country. Recruiting began with the new civic guard, an Irish force with a new uniform under it. Hey, the Criminal Investigation Department, made of plainclothes detectives and military police, was also established. These were known as the CID and they were based in Orient House. As the provisional government could not count on the loyalty of the majority of the IRA, it then had to establish its own army with Collins as Commander-in-Chief. Owen O'Duffy was appointed Chief of Staff. Many IRA men joined the new army in the belief that the treaty was, as Collins put it, a stepping stone towards achieving the Republic. These pro-treaty forces were known as the regular, the regulars sometimes, or the National Army. So Collins became increasingly worried as he realised that the majority of the IRA members, particularly in Munster, were deeply opposed to the treaty. Men such as Tom Barry and Liam Lynch, who had played a leading role during the War of Independence, felt that the existence of the free state betrayed the Republican ideal. Rory O'Connor and Liam Meadows, along with Liam Lynch, led these men. It was the IRA above all who could impede, accept, or enforce the birth of this new state. So from January to July 1922, there existed side by side two parallel armies in the country. On the 10th of March, Minister for Defence Richard Mulcahy banned the upcoming IRA Army Convention when he realised that it would be overwhelmingly anti-treaty. The anti-treaty IRA ignored this ban. Over 200 delegates were present at, were present at the convention on the 26th of March in the Mansion House. They agreed a new constitution for this Republican Army, which stated um, that the Army would be called the Irish Republican Army, it would be an unpaid volunteer force in contrast to the National Army. Its objective would be to guard and honour and maintain, to guard the honour and maintain the independence of the Irish Republic. And it also rejected the treaty and the authority of the Dáil, the Minister for Defence, who is Richard Mulcahy, and the Chief of Staff, Owen Duffy, and again the authority of Dáil Aaron. At the convention, the IRA set up a new 16-man executive. Pictures there of Liam Lynch and Roy O'Connor. Um, Lynch was elected as Chief of Staff, Liam Mellows was made General Quartermaster, and Roy O'Connor became Director of Engineering. O'Connor was asked by a reporter if this meant that the IRA would attempt to establish a military dictatorship. He replied, You can think of it that way if you like. 
But from the start, apart from rejecting the, the treaty, the policy of the anti-treaty IRA was actually quite unclear. Despite O'Connor's comments, the executive had no plans for a military coup or the establishment of an IRA dictatorship. On the 31st of January 1922, Beggar's Bush Barracks was taken over by members of the Dublin Guard, in total about 50 men, under the command of Paddy It was to become the headquarters of what soon would be the pro-treaty National Army. After this, other barracks were handed over by the British to the IRA, regardless of the men's loyalty to the treaty. Some RIC and British Army barracks were taken over by pro-treaty uh, IRA units, while others were taken over by anti-treaty. Dublin was the exception. No barracks in the Dublin area were handed over to any anti-treaty IRA. The IRB also couldn't avoid this bit. Lynch and Meadows were both against the treaty, but pro-treaty Collins and Mulcahy controlled the Supreme Council. The Northern Irish, the Northern Ireland-based IRA, were on the whole pro-treaty, except for the Belfast commander, Joe McKelvey. Collins seemed to have assured them that partition would be temporary. On the other hand, great swathes from Waterford to Limerick rejected it, and this became known as the Munster Republic. There is a danger of isolating Devonair as the embodiment of this um, dissent. Um, the split within the cabinet and the IRA, which led to the civil war, would have happened without him. During the spring of 1922, Devonair went on a speaking tour of Republican held Munster. He argued for a rejection of the treaty, pushing his idea of external association instead. But his position was hard to pin down. Personal correspondence showed that he did, what, did not want military action on the part of the anti-treaty IRA against the provisional government or the British. But a number of heated public speeches indicated he was in favour of armed revolt. Perhaps this was a means to, to regain some control over the men and women of the anti-treaty side. He was no longer the embodiment of the political and military wings of Irish independence as he had once been in 1917. The anti-treaty IRA recognised only their own executive as a legitimate authority, and while they respected Devalier as a symbolic leader, they never took orders from him. It was common among more than any other Republican movement who almost universally rejected the treaty. At the Common Amount Convention, the members voted to reject the treaty uh, 419 votes to 63. These women were often referred to as furies, as in hell hat and fury, in the pro-treaty media. This was one example of the Free State trying to marginalise women and to belittle their war of independence contribution, disregarding the, promise, the promise, promises extolled of equality in 
The intimidation and killing of dozens of Catholics in Belfast, for example, were met with reprisals from the IRA of hundreds of Protestant civilians. So anxious to prevent a civil war in the South, in May, Collins and De Valera worked on a pact that would attempt to rig the results of the forthcoming elections for the third dog. They agreed to hold the election on the 18th of June. They decided that pro-treaty and anti-treaty candidates would all stand for Sinn Féiners in proportion to the seats they had held in the second dog. They would then form a coalition government. The pro-treaty TDs would provide the president and five ministers, while the anti-treaty TDs would provide four ministers as well as the minister for defence. This meant that the Irish electorate would not have a chance to vote on the treaty. Griffith and Kevin O'Higgins condemned the pact as undemocratic, but eventually agreed to it. In the run-up to the June election, Collins and Griffith had to fulfil another obligation of the treaty, which was the drafting of the new Free State Constitution. Collins' initial draft did not include the oath of allegiance or any reference to the Crown, which he hoped would get De Valera and his supporters to accept the treaty. When Collins and Griffith took this draft to Lord George, he demanded they include the oath or face war. Griffith had, and Collins had no, uh, had no option but to agree to this. Collins then re returned home with the new constitution and immediately declared the pact with De Valera's off just two days before the polling day. And here are the results of the 18th of June election. So on the 24th of June, these results were announced. It was a decisive vote in favour of the treaty, with 58 pro-treaty uh, pro TDs elected. All the other parties, apart from the uh, anti-treaty Sinn Féin and the Unionists, and the independents who gained seats, were also in favour of the acceptance. It is worth no noting, however, that a high proportion of votes, some 240,000 out of 620,000, were cast for parties other than the pro-treaty and anti-treaty sides of Sinn Féin. The disintegration of the Sinn Féin movement saw the best ever performance of the Labour Party. They won 21.4% uh, of the first vote, which was never matched in any of the following general elections, not even in 2011. Industrial relations at this time were dire. Trade union memberships had grown dramatically to over 300,000 compared to 100,000 in 1914. Strikes across the country were ongoing. For example, 1,600 railway engineers in Dublin were on strike during autumn of 1921. This period saw the renewal of the slogan, Labour must wait. Solving the economic and social problems of the country must wait until peace was restored. But what is what people wanted? Historian Tom Garvin commented that, an insecure and inexperienced elite found itself presiding over a population that wanted unheroic things. The provisional government, nonetheless, was met with a mandate to confront the anti-treaty IRA. They also were faced with a host of other problems. They had to take over the executive from the British, maintain public order during the transition period, and draft a new constitution. They also had to prepare for an election on the treaty and coordinate the work of the Dáil departments taking over from the British. Kevin O'Higgins later described the provisional government as simply eight young men in the city hall standing amidst the ruins of one administration with the foundations of another not yet laid, with wild men screaming through the keyhole. Following these election results, the political worst situation worsened further. On the 22nd of June, two IRA men killed Field Marshal Henry Wilson, a leading unionist in London. On the 27th of June, the British government informed Collins that O'Connor and the Irregulars could no longer be ignored in the forecourts and they threatened to intervene. That day, the Irregulars kidnapped pro-treaty Army Deputy Chief of Staff J.J. O'Connell and held him in the forecourts. Collins called on those inside the forecourts to surrender. When they refused, he was forced to act. The following morning, at 4.10 a.m. on the 28th of June, the sound of machine gun and fire were heard throughout the city. This was followed by a flood of bombs exploding. The civil war had begun.
These are some pictures of the destruction of the forts. The attack lasted two days and resulted in the surrender of the Orientals. The court's law library was destroyed, resulting in the loss of the loss of 1,000 years' worth of Irish documents. Debates rage to this day whether the explosion was caused by a deliberate booby trap, as the government claimed, or the accidental ignition of the Republican ammunition dump, as the Republicans maintained. Two irregulars, John Cusack and Tom Wall, were killed, and six more were wounded. On Friday the 30th, the last of the men left the four courts, and 100 prisoners were taken to Mentor Prison. Six escaped en route, including Ernie O'Malley and Sean Damas, who escaped after a national army soldier whom O'Malley knew let him go. Among the prisoners were Liam Meadows, Dick Barrett, Rory O'Connor, and Joe McKelvey, who all demanded to be treated as political prisoners. In response, the government issued the following statement. So long as they comply with the regulations governing the case, they will be treated with the fullest consideration and will be permitted as much individual liberty as is consistent with the safe custody. The surrender of O'Connor and Meadows was very important and clearly Collins was conscious of the danger of humiliating them. The surrender of the four courts troop didn't end the fighting in the city. Oscar Trainer, who was head of the anti-treaty IRA's Dublin Brigade, had occupied the northeastern part of O'Connell Street in order to try and distract the <coughs> National Army from the four courts. Following the taking back of the four courts, the government forces now began attacking the irregulars in the other buildings which they had occupied around O'Connell Street and Parliament Square. The government forces concentrated their fire on a block of hotels, which as I said was based around Parnell Street and O'Connell Street, and to which the anti-treaty fighters had burrowed connecting tunnels. However, the incoherent and often haphazard occupation of the buildings in the city by the Dublin Brigade meant it was eventually due to failure. Liaison with the four courts was often dependent on Meyer Comerford, and um, whom you might recall described the, uh, the importance of the first dog in the previous <coughs> lecture, and Moira Comerford and her bicycle in carrying dispatches. She strove to confirm um, Cumminamon's status as indispensable Republican auxiliaries. These retarded communications were to be the hallmark of the conflict in the city. For example, Sean T. O'Kelly's arrival in the Hamam Hotel, which you can see is destroyed again, um, armed only with an umbrella, was indicative of an army ill-prepared and often ill-equipped. Trainer roughly led 500 men throughout the city, but was opposed by 4,000 provisional government troops. Outnumbered and isolated, many were forced to surrender, although Delaware, Austin Staff and Oscar Trainer managed to escape unnoticed on the 3rd of July. Kalhagrua remained at the Grand Hotel to care for his wounded men. On Tuesday the 4th of July, Trainer, through letter, ordered the remaining regulars to surrender, but they held on until Wednesday. That evening, as the last few surrendered, Rua emerged from the doorway with a gun in hand. Ignoring requests to surrender by both enemies and friends, Rua ran to a volley of shots from government troops. He died two days later. In all, fighting in Dublin lasted eight days. 28 combatants were killed, heavier on the country's side, with a total of 61 casualties and 271 wounded, many of which were civilians. The city suffered three to four million pounds worth of damage, and O'Connell Street once again lay in ruins. By mid-July, government troops had taken full control of Dublin. The irregulars were now forced on their remaining strongholds of hardline republicanism, most notably in Munster. Nonetheless, the defeat of the IRA in Dublin was a relief to Collins and the provisional government. The capital was now firmly in their hands, and most importantly, British intervention had been averted. On the 6th of July, the government issued a national call to arms after permission had been granted for an additional 20,000 troops to be raised. Service to the army would be for six months or the duration of the conflict. On Friday the 7th of July, thousands signed up. To cope with the demand, five extra recruitment depots were set up across the city. The ar this army would be a huge cost to the nation. The overall national 
for 22 to 23 was in the region of 26 million. And of this, 7 million went on the army alone. So at the start of the fighting of the Civil War, uh, the irregulars did have more trained men and arms for the pro-treaty army. But this soon overcome with increased enrollment into the government and a supply of guns and ammunition for Britain. In all, the British provided some 1 million worth of arms and supplies to the provisional government during the Civil War. The irregulars established a defensive line from Waterford to Limerick, which was called the Monster Republic. By the 20th of July, government forces had secured both Waterford and Limerick from irregular control. After a vicious attack by the irregular army in Kilmallet and Limerick, the IRA, now under the Lynch, retreated further into Munster. Lynch's forces reverted to the guerrilla warfare tactics used during the War of Independence with far less support from the general public. The IRA's tactic, tactics of blowing up bridges and robbing banks and post offices did not stop the advance of the government army. Kevin O'Higgins described the irregular army's actions as being viewed by 20% idealism, 20% crime, and 60% utility. The newly created War Council, under the leadership of Collins, decided to launch an attack by sea against the Munster Republic. In August, the government forces landed in Kerry and Kinmare and quickly took control of Tralee and North Kerry. By the 12th of August, the Free State forces had taken back control of Fort City, and by the end of the month, all major towns and cities in Munster were under provisional government control. Support for the regulars was dwindling fast, and many realised that surrender was, surrender was the only sensible option. De Valera held this view, but hardline elements such as Lynch refused. Conventional military victory may now have been out of reach, but Lynch hoped to make the new and fragile state collapse by making the country ungovernable. Lynch, a 29-year-old former hardware store clerk in Cork, was determined there would be no compromise short of victory. The Catholic Church, which had never been comfortable with the use of political violence, even though it brought its support large independence, threw its enormous moral weight behind the new government. A notable development during the Civil War was the intervention of the Catholic hierarchy. Archbishop Edward Byrne of Dublin had been quick to state his support for the provisional government. He also attempted with Lawrence O'Neill, mayor of Dublin, to broker peace. Significantly, he tried to persuade Dorothy Cosgrave, with whom he corresponded regularly, not to execute Republican prisoners, which was not only unwise but entirely unjustifiable from a moral point of view. <coughs> At the same time, public opinion turned, turned against the harsh tactics of arrests and executions being used by the free states against the irregulars, and Collins came under increasing pressure to end the war. So after Griffith had been ill for weeks, on the 12th of July he died from a brain hemorrhage. No doubt the stress and strain of the previous 12 months had taken their toll. Collins returned to Dublin from Griffith's funeral, unaware that his own death was only days away. He was advised against travelling to West Cork after the funeral, as he would have, passed through, would have to pass through IRA territory. The main purpose of his visit was to start negotiations to end hostilities between the two sides. Collins ignored this advice and on the morning of the 22nd of August, headed to Westbourne, he joked, no one is going to shoot me in my own county. Anti-treaty forces learned of his journey and set up an ambush, an ambush party at Bay in the Blog on the McCroom Bandit Road in Cork. As they passed the ambush, Collins and his men came under fire. Collins was hit in the base of the skull and died at 9.30pm. Collins' death was a severe blow to many different groups. He was the one member of the Dublin government with whom the Ulster Unionists seemed to be able to do business. The irregulars felt they had lost the one man in government who understood their position and might have prevented further deaths. The government, already reeling from the death of its leader Griffith, had now lost his natural successor. These are just some images from Collins' funeral and that of uh, Lazarus painting the love of Ireland. The people of Ireland had also lost their hero, the big fellow who personified the hopes of a new independent Ireland. On the 28th of August, Collins' body was removed from City Hall, where it had been reposed for a number of days. You can see the top picture 
Kilkeeling up to get to City Hall. The procession, which was three miles long, had an estimated number of 300,000 people lining the streets of the capital as Collins's body passed across Nevin. The burden of the new leadership now fell on the of new leadership now fell on the shoulders of W.T. Cosgrave, who took up the post of president. At 42 years of age, Cosgrave was actually the oldest member of the cabinet. He had been minister for local government. With the support of Richard Mulcahy, who took control of the army, and Kevin O'Higgins as minister for justice, he set about trying to restore law and order. And this is just a photograph of um, W.T. Cosgrave on the far left, and Kevin O'Higgins setting from the right Kevin O'Higgins warned against Mulcahy holding both posts of Minister for Defence and Commander-in-Chief of the National Army as a dangerous complication in relation to the government's control over the army. Gone completely was any thought of social reform, of social revolution or even reform. The government can think of nothing but its own survival. To deal with the enemy, the government passed the Special Powers Act in September 1922. This act introduced internment and established a military tribunal which had the authority to court-martial and execute persons found in possession of arms. After an amnesty of two weeks in which any anti-treaty fighter could surrender without consequences, this legislation came into force in mid-October. The anti-treaty IRA didn't entirely believe the government would act on this, well, on the 17th of November, four IRA prisoners were, were executed by a government-appointed firing squad. Republican and international opinion was rocked by the severity of the government's actions. Leader of the Labour Party, Thomas Johnson, said in the dog, There was no pretense at legality. I am also forced to say that I believe that you have killed the new state at its birth. Cosgrave and his colleagues remained wedded to a ruthless military and political strategy that ensured by May 1923 a decisive win over the Republicans and would end in, it would end in the end of the Civil War. One casualty of this policy was Arsene Childers, who was sentenced to death by firing squad on the 24th of November. The small pistol Childers was found in possession with had been gifted to him by colleagues. The government's hardline tactics were met with reprisals from the remaining anti-treaty forces. On the 30th of November, Lynch ordered IRA units to kill certain supporters of the Free State and any TD who had voted for, quote, the murder bill. On the 7th of December, Sean Hayes, a leading Dáil deputy, who was also an army officer, was gunned down by irregulars in Dublin. The following day in retaliation, Meadows, O'Connor, Barrett and McKelvey were taken out and shot in Mountjoy Prison. As these men had nothing to do with the murder of Hayes, their execution was illegal. Oscar Trainer, leader of the IRA Dublin Grade, was also picked up in late July 1922. In early August, over 100 anti-treaty IRA men were captured in Dublin while trying to destroy all the bridges leading into the city. In November, Ernie O'Malley's safe house in Dublin was tracked down and the leader of the anti-treaty Eastern Command was captured. In the media, the government successfully managed to have the conflict depoliticised, portraying the anti-treaty side as no better than criminals, describing them as bands or gangs rather than troops, and saying that they kidnapped rather than captured the new unarmed police force was up and running, known as the Civic Guard, by September under Owen Duffy. In December, the anti-treaty IRA issued a general order not to attack these unarmed guards. On the 6th of December 1922, the Free State was formally established by an act of the British Parliament, and the last 6,000 British troops in Dublin were shipped back to Britain. The National Army, after an internal reorganisation, was functioning better, while the Republicans increasingly avoided direct attacks on troops. Badly armed, badly fed, and, hunting, and being unhunted from hiding place to hiding place. But Lynch chose to continue the war. In January, the Free State authorised the execution of 32 Republican prisoners 
and by the end of the civil war, the Free State had authorized 77 executions. This was 53 more than the British had executed in the War of Independence. It's estimated that 11,480 Republicans were jailed under the public safety laws. Unofficial killings also occurred. For example, three teenage being air members from Nurkandra who were arrested for putting up anti-treaty posters were also killed. In the new year, Republicans embarked on a wholesale campaign of arson against the homes of Free State Senators. The Senate was the state's upper house and many of its members were former Unionists and members of the old Protestant class. In early 1923, almost 200 mansions went up in flames. This was more than three times the number of big houses burned by the IRA between 1921, 1919 and 1921. The anti-treaty IRA in some districts also encouraged boycotting of Protestants and intimidation was widespread. In a few days in April 1922, 13 Protestants were killed in and around Dunmanway in Cork. And also in Dublin in February 23, the Free State's Chief of Chief Solicitor, M.A. Corrigan, had his house blown up with explosives. March 1923 became known in Kerry as the Terror Month. It began with anti-treaty attacks on Paris B, during which three National Army soldiers and two Republicans were killed. On the following day, a party of National Army officers drove to Nocknagoshal, where they had expected to find a Republican dugout, but instead triggered a booby trap. The explosion killed three Dublin Guard officers and two soldiers. The next day, nine Republican prisoners were taken to Ballysee Crossroads, tied around the landmine and blown up. One man survived, Stephen Fuller, but he was permanently disabled. Nine more deaths of Republican prisoners and explosions took place over the next four days. The government response showed the extent to which they overlooked the, the they looked the other way at atrocities committed by their own troops. Opinion, opinions differ on whether the executions carried out by the government shortened the war and thus saved lives or prolonged it by increasing the determination of anti-treaty forces. However, after the execution of Mellows, O'Connor, Barrett and McKelvey, there were no more assassinations of Donald deputies. On the 10th of April 1923, IRA leader Liam Lynch was killed by government forces in the, the knock-down mountains. Devonair tried to secure a ceasefire, but the government refused unless the irregulars decommissioned arms. On the 24th of May, the new leader of the anti-treaty forces, Frank Aiken, ordered his troops to dump arms. De Valera then sent a message to the soldiers of the Republic, which stated, The Republic can no longer be defended by your arms. Further sacrifice of life would now be in vain, and continuance of the struggle in arms unwise in the national interest and prejudicial to the future of our cause. Other means must be, must be sought to safeguard the nation's right. This was not the same as surrender. The Civil War never formally ended, but it was effectively the end of the war. The Civil War itself had no been finished. The next general election held on the 27th of August, 23, resulted in a majority for the new pro-treaty Communist Party. So, you just see that even though the pro-treaty had the majority, over one million votes were cast for non-aligned party members or independents. The PR system resulted in an interesting spread of the electoral vote. Ernie O'Malley, elected for Dublin North Central while still imprisoned, noted with a mixture of amusement and dismay that voters often gave their second preference vote across the civil war divide. He had been elected with the transfers from votes who had given their first preference to Richard Mulcahy, the man who nearly had him executed. There is uncertainty over the number of people who died during the Civil War, but estimates place at about 4,000. Conflict varied widely in intensity. For example, 120 were killed in Cork, 185 in Kerry, and 200 in Dublin. In contrast to this, in Offaly, County, 21 people were killed. Unlike the War of Independence, this was 
was no enemy community to punish for the hurt caused to one's own side. Civilian deaths, um, the unintelligent deaths of civilian deaths uh, mentioned about 200, which is about 15 to 20, 10 to 15% of the total dead, compared to 30 to 40% of the total um, dead in the war of independence. By mid-1923, some 11,000 were in prison, uh, including prominent irregular commanders such as Dan Green and Austin Stack. De Valera was captured while campaigning in Ennis on the 15th of August and was imprisoned until July 1924 under the Special Powers Act. He was held in solitary confinement for six months. The country remained under effective martial law and was dotted with charred remains of houses butted by the Republican Arsenal campaign. The prisoners had a mass hunger strike in October 1923 in which three men died. Most were not released until mid-1924. OBCs also accompanied the handover of the remains of the execution to their families. The reburials of the bodies were heavily policed and in Dundalk, shots were exchanged in the graveyard. Violence took some time to stutter out around the country and the bitter enmities of the fratricidal strike of 1922-23 lingered for many years thereafter, but the Irish Revolution Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archives podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.